then we know at some point over the next probably two years, the Bank of Canada is going to cut by 250 basis points. I think they'll do 100 basis points in 2024 and then get to probably 3% by the end of 2025. Welcome to the Tom Story Show with Steve Karish and Tom Story, where we discuss everything real estate or whatever else is on our minds. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Tom Story Show. I appreciate you being here. This episode is sponsored by Realty Ninja, and you will learn more about them later in the episode. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can tell I've finally given in. I've shaved my mustache. We are now well into December, and I didn't want to creep people out anymore. But Steve, you kept it, and you've got a black eye. What's going on? Are you getting fights in the street? Market's tough these days. (laughs) The market Steve, really- looks, Steve looks punk as hell right now, and I'm on for it. <laughs> I don't know. I got, um, yeah, I got a. It was a tough negotiation last night. You should see the other guy. Um, he was huge. It's, it's it's starting to look cool though now. Like the last night, it wasn't a big deal, and now the colors coming in. So I'm. I think this is the you first black I've had since I was 12, and I'm loving every second of it. You got it stage diving in a hardcore show. No, I got uh, smashed by a six foot two, two hundred and twenty pound man in jujitsu last night. So, well, yeah, looks. I it looks pretty cool. I think it looks good. Yeah, it's actually look cool. Story. <laughs> yeah, it's totally cool, right? Yeah, except for the fact that I was the one getting smashed. But, well, hey, if uh, if you like Steve's look today, uh, give us a give us a like on YouTube if you're watching us on YouTube. If you haven't already joined the show, our our next goal is to hit four thousand subscribers on YouTube. So if you're showing up every single week and you're enjoying it, all we ask is you hit that subscribe button and uh, and like this video. If you're listening on the audio platforms, I hope you're having a wonderful day. We've got a repeat guest this week. Brendan Augmentson has joined the show. He's the economist the chief economist of the bcrea he is a wealth of knowledge the last time he was on our show we are much smaller he agreed to come on and the show has doubled or tripled since then and that's what we anticipate will happen after round two on the show so welcome back easily great to be here i uh, when uh when does steve get his name on the show has this been like an uncomfortable discussion like <laughs> part of the show and yeah don't see your name anywhere. You know what? what happens? What happens is if you're friends with Tom Story, he tells you, "Listen, you are uh, my friend. Okay, yeah. this is this is the deal. You get to come along with me, but my name's on everything." So I said, "Okay, let's do it." I like you, Tom. All right. There. That is absolutely not the truth of how it happened. We actually did talk about that the other week. I was like, "Why don't we just rename the show to like the Tom and Steve Show, the Steve and Tom Show?" But it yeah. would kind of, you know, it's been building now, so I don't know if that would kind of take us off track but but just so the listeners know and everybody knows yeah yeah just so everyone knows it truly is a 50 50 operation here and steve is a huge part of this show brendan okay yeah all right you're an economist it's probably been a pretty dull year for you right not much going on you've been taking a lot of vacations not many things to do not many people to speak to does that, that sound about right been a pretty boring decade for economics really since the start of my career which coincided with a global financial crisis it's just been very very dull yeah no it's uh i'm i'm i always say i I hope for at least one year they'll be really really boring where we just have like flat sales flat prices and no one wants to talk to me i think that that'll be the 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 best year the best year possible (laughs) and do we feel like you know we'll, we'll cover a ton of topics on today's episode, but I want to start here. So, you know, we're ending off 2023 very, very soon. We're moving into a period of time where at this time last year, everybody thought that 2023 was not going to start very strong. And then it kind of surprised everybody. I'm sure maybe including you, maybe you saw it coming more than we did. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) So, so I feel a little bit better about my predictions for this year. Now at this moment in time, five-year fixed rates, are sneaking at 4.99 again at the banks. Inventory has come down for a few months in a row. Bank of Canada held in early December. Is this the new bottom moving into next year, or am I just making things up? 
I think that four nine nine is like a special offer rate from like one particular bank because the average five year fixed rate is still come down, but still five nine nine. Gotcha. Okay. So there are some offers out there that are better. But the average rate and the deep discounted rate is around five and a half. Five year bond yields have dropped almost a hundred basis points though. So five year fixed rate should come down a lot. I think our we're expecting them to come down close to five percent. Uh, too, clo- too close to 5% mm-hmm. by, by the end of 2024 and maybe faster. Um, I think in terms of sales, we're probably in the last couple of months in BC, but as low as we're, we're going to get. It's a really weird year. We started extremely low. Like So BC, an average year is about 85,000 sales. In Vancouver, it's about 32,000 sales. Uh, we started the year in BC on like a 62,000 sale pace mm-hmm. and carried that for a while. When the Bank of Canada uh, were went on a conditional pause, though, we did see sales come back to what felt like a surge in sales, but it's really from a super slow pace to normal, like long-term average on the dot. But it felt like sales were really picking up because they'd been so low. And then as soon as the Bank of Canada were, uh, raised rates again in June and July, sales are now back off like 20 to 25%. That, that rate hike in June and July really changed expectations in markets about how long the Bank of Canada was going to be uh, uh, at sort of the, these levels and and also uh, how high they were going to, to get in terms of their overnight rates. So that caused a huge surge in bond yields. We hit almost 4.5%, which is like a, almost a 20-year high uh, in October. Uh, that caused five-year fixed rates to go over 6% for the first time since like 2007. That meant a qualifying rate of over 8%. Uh, which you know, 8% hasn't been a relevant mortgage rate in Canada since like the middle of the year 2000. So uh, kind of unprecedented, like not unprecedented history, but unprecedented for all of the clients that you guys have and that probably most of the realtors listening to this, this podcast have never dealt with rates that looked anything like this. So fortunately, it does seem like fixed rates are coming down. They might come down 50 to 100 basis points for the next year, but they're still going to be a lot higher than anyone has kind of grown accustomed to. But we should see a rebound. I think sales will start to pick up second half of 2024. I think we're in for a bit of weakness still because yeah. it's still tough to qualify and the rates have come down a little bit. It's still going to be tough to qualify you know, in the high sevens uh, on uh, for, for most borrowers. And prices haven't come down much. So affordability is still pretty tough. I think that's going to keep sales um, a bit sidelined. I saw someone comment on one of our recent videos and they said, you know, everyone's talking about um, this housing correction, right? But, and this was like a consumer, I don't know who this person is. They're like, Mm. I see a sales correction. I haven't quite yet seen it in prices like I thought. I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, of course we're down from the peak. That that makes sense for, for all markets. But are you a little bit surprised that like the actual average price of properties hasn't dropped more by now? I think our forecast for this year for for BC's average price was about nine twenty five, and we're going to average nine seventy this year. So I was pretty surprised. Uh, the average for the so I'm on this Economic Forecast Council where we get together and uh, provide the Minister of Finance in BC with the forecast for the next year or two and housing market. The average forecast for last year for the average price was nine seventeen. And you know, again, we're going to hit about 970. So everyone was wrong about, about how resilient prices have been. Um, it's really still a supply story inventory. Even though it's up, it's still super, super low. In BC, we're trending around 30,000 active listings. We need to be like at 45,000 active listings for, um, for it to be in like long run balance. So if sales are just normal, average kind of sales, like 70,000 a month, we need uh, 45,000 listings. We're at 30. So listings have to grow 50% to get to a healthy long run levels. And we haven't been there since like 2012. It, and um, if listings aren't, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah. It, and if listings didn't even get there through the last 12 to 18 months, is there any possibility we get to that, those numbers that would put us in that like healthy market inventory? It, it's really hard. It's one of the reasons why, you know, like when sales were just normal in the spring, that's that prices were kind of surging. Uh, like prices in Vancouver were pretty close to their all-time peak at one point in 2023. Um, because inventory is so structurally low that it doesn't take much of an increase in sales to get markets really, really tight. Uh, and then prices start to accelerate. So 
Um, there's risks. So we'd have to see like, this is with like inventories accumulated, but from such an incredibly low level, like during the pandemic, we had 15,000 total active listings in, in BC, uh, which would be like an okay number for Vancouver alone. Um, but for, for BC, it's obviously pretty low. So we're digging out of a really big hole, uh, in terms of total inventory to get from 30,000 now, to like 45,000, We'd have to continue the pace of the very slow pace of sales we have now, uh, and we'd have to see a very large increase in new listings. Um, and that's possible uh, if we have, you know, there's still risks to the economy in 2024. Again, I just got back from the most recent Economic Forecast Council meeting. There's still some some economists that are are forecasting a recession. Uh, most of the, the sort of consensus is like just really slow growth in 2024, but there's still risk. Um, the, the, the impact of, of, uh, of mortgage renewals, especially in more like 2025 is, is real. You know, people are going to be, be reset at 30, 40% higher mortgage payments, even if rates come down. Um, so there's a risk that if the economy deteriorates and people are being reset on their mortgages at much higher payments, that we could see new listings really pick up. Um, I thought that was sort of the worst case scenario for 2023 and we're kind of bumping that in 2024 since it didn't the listings were super low to start the year this year they're about 30 percent below normal they've sort of gotten back to normal in recent months but so that that's sort of the scenario it, it can happen uh in the financial crisis we went from 30,000 to like 55 60,000 in like a couple months but that was that's a special case uh I certainly don't think that's going to happen but uh, so yeah we would have to have an absolute surge in new listings and like real sort of desperation type selling. And when you look at household sort of financial vulnerability, it's really hard to see that scenario playing out. Like mortgage arrears are still 0.12% of outstanding mortgages in BC. Consumer bankruptcies are at a record low. Um, savings, like savings rates are still really high. So households are seeming in good shape. One of the stats I've been quoting a lot in presentations is, is 54% of BC owner households have been in their homes for 10 years or more, mm. which, which means over 50% of owner households have accumulated a massive amount of equity from price appreciation. Price has doubled in the last 10 years. Uh, so if you've been in your house for 10 years or more, you've experienced a massive accumulation of, of equity in your home. That makes you somewhat less vulnerable to, to interest rate shocks and everything else. Also, 45% of BC owner households don't have a mortgage. Uh, it's like 50% in Vancouver. Is it, so. is it that high? It's almost half of households, no mortgage. Yep. And it's mostly yeah. owned by boomers that have just owned it for 30 years, basically. It's always popular to blame baby boomers. <laughs> so yes, with all those baby boomers. They I have mean, all yeah. the money. They have all the money. Yeah. I'm sure there's uh, there's some, some early Gen Xers that have paid off their mortgages too, but yeah. Now, here's not just the million dollar question, but the billion dollar question. Is the Bank of Canada done? Yeah, I think so. Um, if you if you if you look at and obviously the, the economy contracted in the third quarter, we thought that it had contracted in the second quarter too, but that got actually revised up to about a one percent growth. Oh. Um, but core inflation, what I what I've watched the closest because it's what the Bank of Canada watches the closest is the trend in core inflation measured as uh, CPI trim and CPI medium. Those are just ways of throwing out the most volatile prices. Um, and we've had real meaningful progress in those measures after like none for months. So I was worried uh, after like, the September CPI showed a bit of an uptick in core inflation that we'd get a rate hike in October. That didn't happen. Um, you can thank me for, for doing a, a reverse jakes on, on that one. Thank you. Um, uh, but I think now that we've had like two months of, of, of a downtrend and some other just uh, it seems like food costs are coming down. It seems like obviously energy prices are down a lot. Um, that doesn't really get factored into core, but it'll make a big difference in the headline. Um, shelter costs are tricky, uh, but I think the Bank of Canada might look through that. Obviously, rents are still rising at a really fast rate. It's really hard to bring rents down because there's tons of pressure on the rental market from both immigration and just demographics and affordability. And it's really hard to increase supply of rent rental units um we'll get like mortgage interest rate costs which are a big chunk of the cpi that will start to fade kind of the year-over-year impact because mortgage interest rate costs are going to be 30 percent higher you know a year from now like they right. are today 
Because that's uh, a big chunk of it, right? Like that's what gets it over 3%. Yeah. Shelter costs are 30% of CPI. So they're the biggest weight by far. And about two thirds of that is ownership housing. Um, and, oh. and in that ownership, in ownership housing is both prices sort of, and some like maintenance costs and, and mortgage costs. So it's a, it's a big part. I think mortgage interest costs are, I don't know, five or 6% of CPI. Okay. So you talked about rentals so, yeah, there. You know, yeah. So like, unless we see like a meaningful increase in that, in that like core inflation starts coming, going the other way, or we get some, you know, much stronger economic data. Yeah. I think it's most likely done and probably like all of the conversations going to shift in the next year or two. When is the Bank of Canada going to cut and, and by how much? And we're going to get there, but I'm going to make the listeners and viewers wait till we get there. Oh. So the case is closed. The Bank of Canada is is done. Okay. Now on the rental side, Steve, I want you to take over here because you're more of an expert on the BC side of things than I am obviously here in Toronto. Uh, oh. Ravi, friend of the show, Ravi, who's been a guest, has really put a lot of things in place to find more housing solutions. Steve, take over and, and ask Brendan what we it, need to know. It's crazy. So I'm Sorry. assuming that you're trying to stay uh, up to date on all of this, Brendan, but the NDP's brought in sweeping changes, like massive sweeping changes. So my question for you on that with the with this fourplex zoning stuff that they're doing with all of these changes that they've made, has the BCREA yet factored in that or are you trying to factor that into your future projections because is this something where you're going to take a single family lot and have it double in value is this actually going to restore any sort of affordability or is this only going to make it worse this episode of the Tom Story Show is brought to you by Realty Ninja. Hey, real estate agents, I bet you didn't get into the real estate industry to try to become a web developer. Realty Ninja will help you build a beautiful website for your business without becoming all techie, because me and Steve are certainly not techie. They'll set up your entire site for you. They'll migrate the content from your current site, and they'll take care of all the back end, switching the domains, all the things that you don't want to do, they'll take care of for you. Their team of in-house designers will make your new site match your current brand and help you stand out from your competitors. Best of all, Realty Ninja offers a free unlimited trial that lets you build out your website and they do not charge you until you're ready to launch. That's right, they are so confident in their product and that you're gonna love the website that you build with them. They will not charge you until it's ready to launch. They don't even take your credit card details. Listeners of the Tom Story Show will not only get an unlimited trial before you launch. But if you go to realtyninja.com slash Tom, you will get 20% off your first year after you launch. A beautiful, functional, and professional website is absolutely a must in today's real estate landscape and Realty Ninja delivers. So go to realtyninja.com slash Tom for 20% off your first year. That's realtyninja.com slash Tom. And now back to the podcast. So we wrote a cold report on simulating the potential impacts of the homes for people plan um, and basically modeling it after the results that were achieved in Auckland, New Zealand, who also did a massive upzoning. Um, so we, we did all this modeling work. Um, what really matters at the end of the day is all like, there's a lot of noise. The, the signal you want to look for is, is completions. So are we bringing more new units to the market until we have a ramp up at completions? It's all just, it's all just so, conjecture. So these are good policies. I'm certainly in favor of all of these policies. There are ways to get more supply. I think it could be done better. Like some of the cases where you you know can have four units on a lot or six units on a lot, but you can't change the FSR. So you're not really building the way you might want to. You can't use the whole lot. Like in a lot of those cases, you can't just put like a four story walk up with four units, right? You have to, it's like a carriage house and a, or whatever, a basement suite or Something. It's not the best way to use the, the lot in all those cases. The transit stuff is great. You know, 20 stories around transit makes tons of sense. Um, what you're suggesting, like our price is going to rise because now like the land lift, you know, all that density. Um, the the theory is if you do this kind of upzoning in a in a widespread way, then there's less competition for 
you know, just, oh, this one lot is being upzoned, so everyone's going to bid on it. If everything gets upzoned, you get less competition for those lots because you can have density everywhere. And that should mean that the, the overall, the price of that land doesn't skyrocket like it would otherwise. It's going to go up for sure. But then on a per unit basis, we should get more affordability. That doesn't mean that like if you build a triplex, they're all going to be $400,000 all of a sudden. Um, they're still going to be over a million dollars, but that's better than one house that's $3 million. What so, happened in New Zealand? What was the end result? Because I keep hearing that they're modeling this after some places in New Zealand, some places in uh, in California, in Oregon. California and Oregon, probably not the best uh, models right now, specifically California, because their house prices are just as crazy, yeah. not crazier than here. So what made this thing in Auckland or wherever it came from so successful that everybody's modeling after it? So they... They did an upzoning similar to what we're proposing in DC. They got a huge amount of, of uh, what they call consents, the what we would call permits. So a lot of new construction activity. Most of that activity was in the type of missing middle type housing we need here. So they got you know fewer single family uh, uh, permits, but lots and lots of apartments and townhouses. And over sort of the five years from like 2015 to 2020. Reds in New Zealand, in Auckland, were essentially flat, um, whereas they rose in Wellington, New Zealand. So if you kind of do this um, kind of natural experiment, Wellington didn't have an upzoning. Auckland did. In Wellington, uh, rents went up about 25%, and they were essentially flat in Auckland. The same thing happened in the Midwest of the United States. I think it was Minneapolis had a big, big increase in, uh, in, in construction activity and approvals. Their rents actually fell like 20%. And then in like Indianapolis, didn't do nearly as much. Their rents were up like 20%. So you have these like cases where you can compare like cities. One instituted a policy, the other didn't. And in every case we've seen, um, the ones that, that did had much, much better affordability metrics. And it's all of these rents because of the exact thing you bring up. If you look at, at prices, prices go up when you do this kind of rezoning. That's what I was going to ask. Uh, is this mostly uh, rental? It's mostly helping on the rental side, not the average sale price side? Yeah. It, in, in these cases, they, they all use rents as their sort of, as their price metric because the land prices go up. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, well, we'll see what happens here in our, mo in our modeling. Um, and what's really important is, is to lower the long run rate of price growth. So right now in, in BC, or not right now, but over over history in BC with tons of volatility, average prices have risen at like a six and a half percent annual rate, um, which means that prices double every decade. They doubled over the past decade. They'll double over the next decade if you can't slow price growth. It's really hard to slow down price growth if you don't have sort of abundant supply. So if we could increase housing starts by fifty percent, which is no small task. Um, and, uh, and get, you know, the equates to what a 40 something percent increase of completions over a pretty high baseline. Um, we could slow price growth to like 3% in BC and start to bend the affordability curve. So what's really important is that we slow price growth, let income start to catch up, rates come down, the overall affordability equation, you know, starts to, starts to bend. It takes a very long time. So if we could institute all, if we'd start really ramping up construction right now, um, we would start to see a flattening of affordability in 2028 in our modeling and a bending <laughs> of that curve in the mid 2030s. Cause wow. we're, in a, you know, it, it takes a while to, to, it takes years to complete, you know, to get, uh, you know, to build an apartment building right now, the permitting process takes a very long time. Completion times are like two to three years for, for larger condos, especially. Um, and then the effect of how like new housing filters through us, the market. So lots of studies show this as well. If you build a lot of new housing, no matter what type of housing it is, and now people always say, oh, we only build housing for investors and rich people, but no matter what type of, of new housing we're building, what tends to happen is that it frees up the resale stock. So higher income households move into new housing, frees up the resale stock, stock for, for moderate and lower income households. That's who should tends to fill in on the resale side. So you have this filtering effect, listings rise, price growth slows, affordability improves. That's the way it's supposed to work. We'll we'll see. 
Uh, again, lots of noise. The, the signal over the next few years is watching completions. Are we actually completing units at a much faster pace? Because if we're not, then nothing's working. I think there's a very good chance that the latest announcement, and this is not a, this is just a, an announcement like, hey, we're looking into this. It's not like one yeah. of the guaranteed things yet, but the latest announcement that could make the biggest change in how we um, perceive a home in the lower mainland of BC is they're now looking at single egress staircases as being implemented into the zoning plans, I guess, for this new fourplex. So in English, if I understand what the heck that means, because I had to look it up, <laughs> it means you can now build effectively a, let's call it a four unit apartment building yeah. Because you can have a common staircase for so, all of the units. And which, that would be a massive change. That, yeah, it's those little little details that matter a lot. Because it if you can't have a single staircase, then it gets very expensive to build and you can't have as many units. Because I guess the way the staircases have to work. Parkings, the other big one that always <laughs> throws a monkey wrench, like... You can only have, if you have four units, you also have to have all these parking spots. Or if you have you know a certain amount... Which means building a parking garage, like digging under or whatever, and that just, everything gets more expensive. But you can just if you can just build single staircase with no parking, apparently it's like gets much more economical. So so this is all good. We're happy with all these changes, but best case, if the starts happen, okay, because again, the models are always right. We haven't talked about that always. yet. Okay. Always. So if the models are always right, then by 2028, we're going to feel it a little bit. And by into the 30s, we'll actually see if, it, which will get us to 3% growth per year instead of six over the next the decade after that, I guess. Yeah. And this is always like, you know, compared to a baseline. So our baseline is things get, get worse because prices just keep growing, even not at an accelerated rate. It doesn't take much. A million dollar average price compounding at 5%. Things get out of hand pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's not even that, that high of a price growth. Um, uh, yeah. So the baseline things get worse, right? Cause price growth outpaces income growth and rates in our models, the, our long-term five-year fixed rate is about four and a half percent. So okay. that's about 150 basis points higher than it's been over the past decade. So we're not getting a lot of help on mortgage rates in terms of affordability. Prices keep growing. Kind of hard to see affordability improving. Uh, unless we can really slow down price growth. The only way to do that is to increase long-term, is to increase supply or have some, you know, especially given our demographics. Like, there's going to be lots and lots of demand over the next 10 years. We have more people in that 25 to 40-year-old age group that tend to buy homes um, or, or or form households. We have more, we're going to have more people in that age cohort than at any time since the 1970s. So demand's there. Um, we need to be able to put them, those people somewhere. I have I have uh, a very specific question. I'm going to hold you to it, and we're going to come back to this next year when we have you back on. Okay. If I'm betting right now, or at least the modeling, let's call it the modeling, 12 months from now, where are we expecting prices to be? You said that you have that figure of 975 or whatever that was way off. Uh, we weren't expecting an uptrend this year, or I wasn't anyway. I was expecting a slow, steady downturn all year long. And then we saw a spike in an up and a down. So 12 months from now, what's the projection? Is this uh, uh, December over December or or an annual price? Let's do December over December if we can. It's tricky because even like December over December this year, we're going to be up like, because last December was really low on the average price. Yeah. I started the year below nine hundred thousand. It's like eight. The January is like eight sixty seven or something, and I can't remember what uh, what December was, but it was really low. This December, we're right now. We're at nine sixty eight in nine sixty five in November. Let's just call it. Say we're at nine sixty in December. I get. I, I our forecast for next year is an average price of nine nine ninety five or something. So up. Let's say we'll, we're going to be around there in December. Crazy, because here I just did the numbers. I looked at the uh, the one I report on on my channel is the Surrey combined numbers, and okay. so Surrey combined um, condos were four point five percent up 
which I thought we were going to see that in the other direction. So 10% difference, basically, let's call it. And then Four. townhomes were 5.9 and detached were 6%. Because if you would have told me in our last conversation, and I actually re-listened to our uh, last conversation to prepare for this, mm-hmm. and everything was doom and gloom and craziness. And yeah. it, it's funny to hear how far we've come since we met you a year ago and then how much we're talking about the exact same talking points. Yeah. Because because well, a lot of it is identical to try and live with inflation and all those different things. A lot like 2023. Yeah. If you, and that was, that was probably before, I mean, if you told me at the start of the year that we have an 8% stress test rate, I would have thought we'd have a much, much worse housing market and like sales are bad. Yeah. Especially the last few months. We're going to finish the year in, in BC at like, I don't know, 74,000 sales total, which is a really, really low number. Vancouver's going to be like 26. Fraser Valley is going to be, um, I think, like 13 or something. It's very, very low anyway. Um, so really low sales, but really firm pricing. And again, it just goes back to the listing side. If we just don't have the listings, it's really, really difficult uh, to get, you know, prices down if we don't have an oversupply so do you think that sales volume in 2024 will be better than 2023 number of transactions taking place yeah so our forecast kind of has a dip and then a like almost a u-shaped recovery um i think once it's clear the bank of canada is cutting rates um and that's going to just spur a lot of pent-up demand especially if five-year fixed rates are down i think we'll have a similar situation to what we saw in May and June, like I don't think we're going to get that right away because the qualifying rate is so high. But mm-hmm. if we have five-year rates come down to, say, even five and a quarter, so that the qualifying rate's lower, plus you've got certainty uh, from the Bank of Canada or expectations that you can't be cutting, I think that's going to push a lot of demand that's on the sidelines now back into the market, and we'll get sales picking up. How did that happen in the second half of 2024? Uh, whatever the bank, it's really kind of clear the Bank of Canada is going to be cutting. I think that's that's... I think that's the most likely scenario, but it doesn't mean it's yeah. never play out the way you think they're going to. Um, but I, I think that's that that's sort of likely. And if, if that happens, we'll have sales that are slightly higher than this year. I can't remember where our forecast is. I think it's around 80,000 sales in, in BC. So still below average, yep. um, but uh, but on the, on an upswing head into 2025. No, when you look at the prices that have, I think for all three of us, kind of surprisingly in all, in, in all of our markets, held up stronger than we anticipated, although the sales volume is very low. And then you try to figure out like, okay, why did that happen? And you could talk about the extension of the amortization on the variable rates, but now even the people that are renewing on the fixed rates, the banks are saying to them, hey, Brandon, you want to put it back to 25 years? You're at 15. Now, I don't think for you as a homeowner, it's necessarily a great thing because you're paying more interest over a period of time. But like, there's all this talk about what is propping up the market. And we haven't even talked about this mortgage charter, which probably isn't going to actually do anything. But um, <sighs> why have prices not fallen? Like what? I, I know inventory, but we still have had enough inventory that we should have seen enough, pre- may, maybe not in BC, but like it wow. seems odd yeah. that prices are, are holding like this. So in the first part of this year, um, new listings were 30% below normal. Mm-hmm. And I think for... One of the reasons why, I mean, we did a bunch of modeling on, on this too and wrote up a little piece about it, but the sort of factors that drive new listings are are the labor market. So if you've got still strong employment growth, you know, people aren't going to be desperate to sell their home. So there just seems to be, a, there's a really strong correlation between listings and the unemployment rate. If you get a spike in unemployment, you get a lot more listings on the market. Unemployment rate in BC has been very low all year. Um, the other one that, that made a big difference that hasn't mattered in a while is, is interest rate differentials. So if you got a mortgage in, you know, say 2021 at 2%, whatever number, low number you want to pick, and you're looking at maybe selling now, you're going to be getting a new house at 6%. So that lock-in effect tends to mm. keep a lot of sellers from not selling. Uh, that would otherwise i know you can sometimes you can port your mortgage or whatever but it's i think it's kind of difficult in practice um so that that interest differential has made a big difference if you're going to get all the it's all of a sudden have a much much higher payment uh, on on the on a, on a new home that you're moving into that might keep people from selling so that that's been a big part that'll fade over over time uh as as rates kind of uh over you know for like a 
five-year period to kind of normalize. Um, I don't remember. What, oh, yeah. Uh, well, prices. So like, just I'm the just price. Like, how are they holding like they are? It's just like, so, it's so kind we of did, surprising. We didn't get an increase and in, we had very low levels of inventory. And, you know, the the, the almost sort of iron law in, in housing is, is really like, there's a very strong correlation between how tight markets are and, and price growth. So you get changes when things change really, really fast. And then you can have what looks like a balanced market and prices falling. Um, but generally, like if markets, if we have a sales stack to listings ratio where you can flip it to months of inventory, if that's around like, yeah. you know, about 20%, prices are going to be growing. And if we have a really low inventory, that means we can get to that level with not a whole lot of sales. And again, you, you have households that aren't, super vulnerable to interest rate shocks apparently is what we've we've learned over the past the past year um we probably talked about this last time too households in canada uh during the pandemic saved somewhere between 250 and 350 billion dollars uh so they have a massive cushion to absorb a lot of the the, the shocks that we've seen higher interest costs higher inflation uh one you know and then of course even though past year real wages have been rising so you have a household that are have a huge accumulation of savings. Um, they they're still employed. In many cases, their wages are rising. Um, and then, like I was saying before, they're either don't have a mortgage or sitting on in a massive amount of equity. So when rates go up, it seems like all of those things have been an incredible kind of buffer to uh, to uh, against against rising rising rates. Really hard thing to model because those aren't normal situ. This is a normal situation, especially coming out of our what was a pretty serious recession, or at least a deep recession from the pandemic. So it's a really abnormal situation we're in, and everything still kind of traces back to the pandemic and how unusual it was. And I guess yeah, it's a really good point because even though it feels like for me as what? an active real estate agent and for people looking at houses that there's definitely more homes for sale than there used to be. The used to be was such a low point that we've gone from an extreme seller's market to a balanced out market, but in a buyer's market in some segments of the market, but not across all the way for, for like a six month period, right? It's like those that have kind of pumped up and Steve, have you still seen inventory slowly knocking off every month? Like you're going to end the year. I mean, it's December, so it makes sense, but we got to a pretty good chunk of inventory in Toronto yeah. and then it uh, right away dropped off. It in didn't the Fraser hold. Valley, it... Yeah, in the Fraser Valley, it uh, it went up really quickly between that five and six thousand listings, and then as soon as it hit six thousand, it seemed to be there for like a day and a half, and then it started falling off again really quickly. What we're yeah. noticing though is our detached market specifically seems to be the one that's in buyer market territory with like nine months of supply across almost the entire Fraser Valley, and it's strange because those prices, as we mentioned here, are pretty much not moving even though we're firmly in a buyer's market territory yeah fraser valley is interesting because their inventory is actually one of the only markets that's like fairly close to what we would consider like long run balance i can't remember what the number is it's like between six and seven thousand i think for fraser valley and uh we're getting close it's it's one of the closer ones um but yeah not not a whole lot of impact on prices people just don't need to sell so if you, if you're not like if you haven't lost your job if you, if you can still afford your house or even in a lot in a lot of cases an investment property then you know they just don't so they're happy just to hang on to it. How do we adjust for that um, with population growth? Adjust for what? Just the, the when you're looking at the amount of say active listings or number of sales hmm. like the population is exploding. So. Is it not that if we got to 6,000 active listings now and that was regular for the Fraser Valley, where I feel like it is, isn't that now actually low? Yeah, it kind of depends on on how much the population is buying because it's always, you know, the metric we always use is, is sales sales to active listings ratio. So it's always so somewhat normalizes for that. If you get there, I guess now at, you know, lower level of sales means, I guess you have to have much, much more listings. You have higher sales. It's still like if we're kind of in that 20% plus, we're going to be in a seller's no matter what the kind of, you know, unit amounts are, right? So it may be, you know, if, if and it's actually kind of true, like the Fraser Valley especially has changed so much um, that like what used to be normal level of sales, say like 15,000 sales is now like 18,000 sales is like 
what should be a normal level of sales for, for Fraser Valley. I think we actually got to like 24,000 or something in 2021, which it would be like a, a bad number for Vancouver, but an extraordinary number for Fraser Valley. So it's true, like sales will grow. And I think our 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 number of active listeners is more based on like the past five years than you know, a really long-term average. So we always kind of adjust it that way. We had, um, we're going to end this year for the Toronto Real Estate Board, which has over 70,000 licensed real estate. I'm sure you've heard, right? Kind of crazy here. Um, we're going to end this year probably about 65,000 transactions. Um, mm-hmm. Now, again, that doesn't include pre-construction or off-market luxury stuff, but still, you know, it's a good metric. Last year, we ended at 75,000. The year before was 121,000. The last time we were near 65,000 was 2001. Yeah. And like, you would expect it. Numbers like that, that prices would take a bit of a that's, hit. That's what I can't figure out. It's funny, though, because when you look at the the metrics, um, like for BC, so sales this year are really low, and the annual price, you know, if you just calculate, add all the volume over the course of the year and divide it by, uh, by the units over the course of the year, mm-hmm. we're going to be down at, I still think, like 3% or something. The average price last year was like 990-something in 2022. Uh, average, of course, it was started really high and then came down really low. But on average, it was it was much higher. Um, so it's, it's weird. these price metrics are kind of weird. Like the annual average doesn't always maybe maybe measure what actually happened th- throughout the year. Um, so, but it also like sometimes the December over December is not a not really typical either. So it's kind of sometimes tough. To, but when we look back at history, it's going to show that both sales and prices were down in 2023. Okay, so there are many people listening to this that have a variable rate and they've weathered the storm and they've taken a beating. They, their face looks like Steve right now because they keep getting smacked, smacked, smacked. And it sounds like there's good news in the fact that the Bank of Canada might be done going up. But now the big question is, well, when are they going to start going down? And not just when are they going to start going down, but how far are they going to go over what period of time? So let us know what's going on. So I think it's helpful to have kind of a benchmark. So where the Bank of Canada wants its overnight rate to be, what they call it, it's neutral rate. They actually have a range for it. It's between 2 and 3%. So they think their models tell them that between 2 and 3%, uh, that's where inflation's back to 2% uh, at its target and where there's no excess demand or excess supply in the economy. So it's sort of like the Goldilocks sort of rate. Um, so if you think they're going to 2.5%, so it's just the midpoint, um, then we know at some point over the next probably two years, the Bank of Canada is going to cut by 250 basis points. I think they'll do 100 basis points in 2024, wow. starting in, I would guess, April, and then get to probably 3% by the end of 2025. So I'd say 200 basis points over the next two years, maybe maybe more if inflation is, we get sort of more, more progress on inflation than um, than is currently expected, or if the economy is a little bit worse. The one sort of risk to the pace is the Fed in the United States is a little bit behind us in terms of their own uh, monetary policy cycle. You don't want, generally Canada doesn't want to get too far away from from the U.S. on interest rates because you can kind of undo a lot of things you're trying to do. If, if, uh, if we're, we're too low, then uh, we're going to, uh, instead of stimulating the economy, uh, we're gonna we're gonna end up, uh, or sorry, instead bring inflation down, because the loonie will will de- will decline. We'll get inflation picking back up from both import prices and um, and trade, uh, causing sort of excess growth and reigniting inflation. So you can sort of undo some of the effect on inflation from uh, the difference in exchange rates. That sounds like something that. I didn't think I was going to hear from you, honestly. Like, I'm like, do you really think like is that too fast for them to go did down? Did you that did you much? see when you said that number how big both of our eyes got when you were like, oh yeah, it's yeah. going to come down like two point five in the next two years, and and Tom and I are just yeah. I mean, that's if you, if you if over a two year period that we should be able to get back to a two percent inflation or inflation target, right? Right. We're at three point one right now, year over year. Well, um, energy prices are coming down. All prices are sort of headed in the right direction. There's no reason for the Bank of Canada to be um, to have their rate at this at that level 
um, if inflation is there, there's only re, the only you know, the sole mandate for the Bank of Canada is to get inflation two percent. If it's there, there's no reason to be so it has set rates so far above neutral. Everything in the models that the Bank of Canada uses, everything in kind of modern macroeconomics, is about sort of gaps. So if the gap between the your overnight rate, your policy rate, and your neutral rate is excessively high, it's going to really put the brakes on the economy. And we don't need to do that if inflation's at two percent. So you know, bring slowly, it's over two years, bringing uh, your overnight rate back to two and a half percent. Keep in mind, at two and a half percent, you know, with given historical mortgage spreads. Um, that implies like a 4.85% five-year fixed rate. So mm-hmm. it's not like rates, it's not like mortgage rates are going to be super low. Right. Um, that's much, much higher than, than any buyers have become accustomed to over the past decade. So it's well, a lot lower. You sort of stop banging your head against the wall. So it feels great. Right. I wish I had taken your advice and not listened to Steve in October when I locked in a three year fixed over 6% at no, the 20 no, 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 year no. high. I yeah. Did not yeah. That. I'm blaming that on you. That. No, no, Brendan. Okay, you're here. You're going to hear this right after, right after our last call together. I told this guy to take a five year at 479, and it would have been fantastic. And he did not do that. Do you need insurance? The answer to that question is obviously yes, of course you do. Whether you are a tenant, landlord, or homeowner, you need to insure your property and belongings. And when I insure my investment property, personally, I choose Square One. Square One is affordable online insurance for everyone. If you apply for your Square One insurance policy using the link in the description of the show notes, listeners of the Tom Story Show can receive $20 off right now simply by going to squareone.ca slash the tom story show square one is no joke i personally use square one for my landlord policy on my investment condo i picked square one because they were easier to work with than other insurance companies and when i had an issue with my previous policy coverage in relation to my stratas coverage square one was the insurance company that came up with a solution for my insurance problem at an affordable rate. Online quotes take less than five minutes with Square One. Get your home insurance quote today at squareone.ca slash the Tom Story Show and save 20 bucks. Yep. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But okay, guessing so. Rates, Tom, guessing rates. If, is, I'm, is... if I'm hearing this right, it's like, okay, you go to where the market was in February 2022. And we've had, has it been 10 interest rate? I, I lost count. I don't know. I 10 or 11? Yeah, basically. Okay. 75 points. So. so that got us to a point that from the peak of our mark in the GTA, our average sale price is down 16% from that crazy month of February 2022. I'm not sure. Are you guys similar from that peak month maybe? Yeah. I think we're similar down, down about, it's like 10 or something yeah and then some markets are down a lot more yeah. like in the freezer valley prices had gone up like 60 percent right uh right. and did back some of it and then got back some of it so yeah. so it's like okay that happened but interest rates significantly up the fastest in history okay now inflation is coming down it's working but housing prices didn't fall as much as maybe people thought that they should have and now we're going to do 200 basis points cuts in the next two years and get back again, not to say we're going to 2% fixed rates anymore, but it's going to be in the mid to high fours. Is the, is the market not just going to take off? If it's still moving it's like right now, yeah, it's, not, it's slowly moving, but it's not just going to rock it up again. I think that's the highest probability, right? If we're going to have much lower rates, we know that the demand is there because of demographics. Else, there's tons of housing demand. Um, we still have massive intergenerational wealth transfers, which is really important in big cities. Uh, so, you know, the down payments are probably going to be there. We've had years to save as well. People have been on the sidelines. Um, there's a lot of pent up demand. Uh, and, and if we're going to have any meaningful increase in, in affordability from lower rates, and we're not going to have a large increase in, in inventory. Then it's really going to it's going to be really hard for markets to absorb all that pent up demand once it's once it's uh, off the sideline. Is yeah. there any sort of modeling or estimates for when Canadian immigration slows down, or maybe where it gets so unaffordable that people start 
leaving? Like, is is that been factored in at all? Because everybody always says now, well, it's getting so unaffordable that maybe people will just stop coming. I can't see that to be the case with such a small population compared to other countries. Um, so the the targets for permanent residents uh, is five hundred thousand per year until two thousand twenty six. That they extended it a year, but they didn't increase it. Um, BC gets fifteen to twenty percent of that target. Ontario gets, I think, sixty percent or something. It's a very large number. Um, that means a lot of households. So, if say we get a hundred thousand people per year at BC, most new immigrant households are about have a household size of like three to three point three or something. So, it's called like thirty thousand households. So, it's like an extra thirty thousand households per year. Some of those households, most people are already here, just waiting for permanent. So, when you think about like housing demand. Um, a lot of people were just here waiting for their applications to be processed, but they were already in Canada. So they're already housing demand. So not all of it was new. Uh, but, but the ultimate effect is at least in BC, tens of thousands of new households being, being brought in. That's instantaneous demand that of course, in the supply constrained market is going to push up rents and prices. What the sort of effect that is on, you know, if you're, if you're now a, uh, an immigrant that the country looking to immigrate to Canada, um, does that dissuade you? Haven't seen it yet. A lot of the the a lot of the numbers you see, like the really big numbers, are the result too of uh, temporary uh, residents, so students and temporary foreign workers. I think that that number is really volatile, and it it was really high in 2023 because so we're kind of making up for um, uh, the past couple of years. So that that will come down. Uh, so some of the the really big numbers, like I think in some cases the the temporary foreign uh, workers and students, not permanent residents, is is at least as high as the permanent residents number, uh, if not if not much higher. So that will slow down, I think, quite a bit. Um, but we'll still have the permanent resident. So we're gonna have really high population growth for several years, um, and that's that's immediate housing demand, and that has a, an immediate effect on prices. So. I don't know. I don't see it slowing down a lot, except for on the temporary, uh, on the on the non-permanent resident side. But you know, maybe. So we're having okay. government. We'll have a new government probably in a couple of years. Yeah, uh, that with different policies as well. So it's always you have to count for so that. So if we take the bullet points here and we go, okay, you know, immigration levels remaining relatively high. Um, Bank of Canada going to cut at some point and and cut you know fairly significantly. Um, the demand that exists in the housing markets in in Toronto and Vancouver and the surrounding, really Ontario and BC generally overall. I'm asking you this as a semi hypothetical question. This this is a me scenario. So this is not financial advice to anybody listening. And me and Steve don't have an agency relationship with you, so we're not <laughs> telling you what to do. I'm asking for me. Like this is like a not that I'm doing either of these things, but okay. If the thought was all right, I could just pay down significantly. A mortgage that I can still afford the payments for. It's not stressing me out, but I could take a chunk of money and pay it down. Or based on everything that I've just learned in the last 45, 50 minutes, I look at just what the numbers are telling me, what the models are potentially looking at. And I go, okay, well, right now prices are low relative to where they were. They're not, they're not low, low, but they're lower than they were. I'm hearing interest rates are going to come down over a period of time, immigration staying up. Long story short, do I look at December, January, February, March into 2024 and go, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to own it for 10, 20 years and look long-term on real estate or do I just pay off the asset that I have? Um, I couldn't remember the first part. What was the asset that you have? <laughs> let's, say, let's say you got Three hundred and fifty, four hundred thousand dollars cash, and you want to invest in something that will break even right away, or you pay off your mortgage. Um, well, it's all about differences in rates of return. So, if you have a mortgage with a very high rate, uh, higher than you could get on a return, mm -hmm. then it's ready to pay it off. Uh, yep. If you have a very low mortgage rate and you can get a much higher return on that four hundred thousand dollars, maybe not in the housing market, but somewhere, that doesn't really make sense. Like use use the leverage, right? Um, now, could you, on an investment property, um, get a higher return than if you, like, well, Tom, you said you had a 6% rate <laughs> right now, three years. It's a shame. Um, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> could you could you earn six percent? So your cap rate's going to be pretty low. I think you buy like rents are really high, mm. but most condo investors, I think, in, at least in Vancouver, are cash flow negative. Most, yeah. And you have very little ability once you once you uh, set that rent to increase it very much uh, without removing a tenant, which is also very difficult to do in BC. So your your return versus you know being able to get five percent on a GIC currently is probably not great on 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 the rental side. And your capital appreciation is probably, I mean, I think risk is the upside on prices. So maybe you could, you could get a decent return. But if we implement the policies that the government wants to implement and they work, then your your price appreciation is going to slow as well. So right. I don't know. Um I would probably if I had a six percent mortgage, I'd probably be paying that down. Yeah. Um yeah. uh yeah, it's I think I think generally like returns on real estate, if if we can implement the types of supply policies or if they work, then rent growth is going to slow price appreciation is going to slow. So you're really betting against basically continued, you know, really bad affordability in BC. And that might be, that might be a good bet. It's been a good bet for a long time. Um, but we're at least trying to fix it now. Uh, it's a very long-term solution. So maybe over the next 10 years, you can still get decent returns. And maybe option number three is if just throw that money into a GIC now, lock it in at 6% because if Bank of Canada does come down, the GIC is not going to be at 6% anymore. Steve, you've got uh, something can to chime I, in. Can I give you financial, Tom, story? This is financial advice for you. You've you've just redone your mortgage. I'm assuming, uh, knowing where I know you have, which institution you're at, you probably got somewhere between a 13 and 20% original borrowing pay down per year. So if, yes. right? So if mm-hmm. I had a yeah, you're good, yeah. <laughs> sum, right? I would take that lump sum per year I did and that. I would put down as much as I could, but I would do it again next yep. year in the oh, calendar year and I would do it again and again. And then on the other side, you're going to now be making these astronomical payments because you can't adjust those. But you're, what you owe on the other side, you're going to be very happy that you paid them down in well, the future and knowing your family situation i mean who knows you might be ready to move up to the next house right so pay down that mortgage all right there you go you heard it here that that's kind of what i was thinking is just do the lump sums every year until the three years are up and then hopefully i can get a four and a half percent rate then but isn't this this is the conversation i've been having with a ton of clients right now because i'm getting those phone calls from people that want to invest right now and i have spent a ton of time talking people out of investing because well it doesn't take a, a ton of time once I tell them they're going to negative cash flow $700 a month. They usually shut it down pretty quick after that. But there's a, a big appetite of people that do have the 20% that want to do something with it. And there's there's two situations where I'm telling them to do it. Right now, if you do have that, put it down on your principal residence. Or number two, if you are already own a principal residence and you're looking to buy that investment condo, right now I'm really encouraging people to upsize their home because detached has come down so far and with everybody being super favorable to basement suites right now in our area put that income in your basement and you're going to do way better off in the long run than taking on another set of property taxes another strata fee and all these other expenses like when you have that expense or when you have that rent coming into your principal residence it's all going towards you you're not doubling up on these other fees and there's some incentive programs that they come in at to put in basement suites where you they match the dollars and some money or something. So yeah. So I did have that. Uh, I had my first client reach out um, about BC's incentive, and it's like a forty thousand dollar forgivable loan, right? Or no, sorry, not below market rents or something. But there's also a household income cap. Okay. Yeah. Which there I was fine. Exactly. Even so nobody's actually going to use it. Crap right? policy so that no one will use them. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make this great policy that nobody's ever going to use so we can look like heroes, well, right? It's like a basement suite where, like, if you're in a house that's large enough to have a basement suite, you probably have a certain income anyway, but then you right. can't put it in the basement suite. So, and, so are, are we looking right? at all of this as, as like, this is a bit of a soft landing if if they come down as 
like we think they're going to do you that almost so that basically never happens if you look back in the past hundred years um every time inflation is spiked it's taken a recession to bring it back down are we in a recession no uh no. this year look looks uh it's starting to look more and more probable that we have a soft landing so if we can get inflation back to two percent without sacrificing much in the way of output and employment it's, it's kind of a miracle I mean, we could like with the timing of rates we could time it perfectly and that almost never happens so um there's certainly a risk that it won't happen this time uh we could you know we ask are we in a recession now like i guess we could be like if in a technical way like the third quarter contracted by one percent we're in the fourth quarter right now right. it's tracking 0.5 or something so that that could be negative Hard to call something a, re a recession when we're still creating jobs and unemployment rates really low and wages are rising. It's really hard to label something like, like that as a as a recession. So I would look for we have declining growth plus the unemployment rates are really spiking up. We're seeing job losses month after month. That's a recession to most economists. Uh, the sort of technical idea of of GDP contracted, but maybe it's because like inventories were down or some like really really volatile part of, of GDP in the national accounts. It's kind of hard to label that as a recession. And when you meet, when we were in Tom. Sorry, I'm going to break in. Um, go, go when for we it. were in a, a conference last week, uh, Ben Tao was there, did a presentation. He actually says we are in a recession right now. And what he said, the like, way he broke it's the housing recession, which isn't, I don't really know what that. No, means. what he said was when you break it down per capita. Oh, if, okay, yeah. That's never how anyone defines recessions, but yeah, it's, <laughs> the GDP has been falling for a while because we have very high population growth and low economic growth. So obviously, per capita, in per capita terms, uh, we have seen declining. That's how we're going to measure international, compare international living standards is by looking at per capita GDP. It's kind of tough though. Like these are long-term things. If you have a whole bunch of population growth, you're obviously not going to immediately get the gains in productivity that you would need. So when you think about GDP is two things, long-term. So how, how an economy grows long-term is all about how much is your labor force growing? So how many people do you have making stuff? And then two, how good are they at making that stuff? And we call that productivity. So the sum of like productivity and labor force growth is GDP growth. Right now we have tons of labor force growth because of, of largely because of immigration. Um, but if we have a lot of people who are new to the country, they're not going to be immediately awesome at their job. takes takes a while for those productivity gains to show up, even if you're getting you know you know highly educated uh, new immigrants. We should get realize those gains though at some point, especially if we have this sort of targeted system. Our productivity should kind of get back from being very negative the way it is now to to positive. Uh, so eventually, our per capita GDP growth I think will pick up. I think looking at you know, I'm not sure it's looking at per capita GDP in a short-term window and declaring something a recession is particularly useful. I've got a prediction for 2024, okay? And this is where I think, Brendan, for you, you're like, finally, our time has come. We're being recognized. I think there's some four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds right now in, in grade one or whatever that adds up to be. And they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And no more firefighter, no more policeman. They're like, I want to be an economist. And when you go to these forums, is there paparazzi yeah. outside when you guys come out now? You're celebrities now. Like, it, what happened here? Even my my kids don't want to be economists, so I don't think this is going to be trickling down. No, uh, I, think I, I think I was recognized on the street once. <laughs> so, and, it would, and then you just get lots of, like, questions that you have to answer. I don't even tell anyone I'm an economist. I certainly don't tell people I work in the housing market. I'll admit <laughs> If you, if you do that at any like party, all you're going to do for the rest of your night is answer questions. Like who yeah. wants to do that? And I don't have, I don't have a slide deck with me. So now I'm like, uh, what am I making? I got to make a presentation at this, at this dinner. Like, what are we doing? Do you don't have a fake career? Do you have a fake backup I, that you'll say? No, but I should, I should find something. Something super boring. I think I'd say like, I mean, I'll tell them I'm in H back. <laughs> yeah. Conversation like, ends. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, because like, then they want you to come over. They want about that. Yeah. They're like, oh, they mine's making a weird over. sound. Fix a furnace, or yeah, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, I in my <laughs> old career, uh, I used to fix food equipment. 
and let me tell okay. you what nobody wants to ever talk about. So tell everybody you fix food equipment and they will, yeah. that's where the shutdown of the conversation happens. Or like some really boring, like manufacturing thing, like mm -hmm. some kind of widget manufacturing. they like something that no one's like, just, we make gaskets. Like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and then will not talk to you the rest of the night. Ball bearings. <laughs> ball bear. I'm in the ball bearing business. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan, uh, I appreciate you hanging out with us for another hour. I uh, I really, really enjoy you coming on the show so much. You're you're fun. You know what you're talking about. You're not over obviously a very, very smart person, but you make talking about what you know and not what you do for everyone. Yeah, well, but for what you do for a living, you make people like me and Steve and lots of other Canadians be able to understand it simply, and we appreciate that. And you don't come on here and confuse us with we also told you before, no big words, right? We made that pretty clear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, awesome episode. I think our, our audience is absolutely going to love it. Uh, Steve, you got any uh, final thoughts for Brendan? No, this was great. I appreciate this. Hopefully we can make this some sort of a December tradition for our outlook in the new year. Always happy. Always happy to come on. So it was a good time. Thanks. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Real Teen Ninja for sponsoring this episode. And we will see you next week. Bye. Thanks, okay, one Brent. sec.